You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking this morning at chapter 27. And we'll read together verses 27 to 44. You'll find this on page 936 of the Pew Bible. Acts 27 and verses 27 through 44. Hear the word of God. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were on all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Well, the last time we looked at this book, we were assured, or at least God assured Paul, that every passenger on board would be delivered. Verse 24, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And yet in our text for today, we're confronted with a very curious thing. God ensured the passenger's safety last week 
And yet here he warns that they somehow may be lost. Did you see that? Some of the sailors were trying to escape by lowering the ship's lifeboat into the sea. They were trying to hide their scheme, claiming that they were laying out the anchors. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Don't you find that curious? Doesn't it seem to you like something of a contradiction? Paul warns against letting the sailors escape since that would mean their ruin. But didn't God promise to all who sailed with Paul that they would be saved? So which is it? Would God save them or would they forfeit their salvation? How can God promise their salvation and yet threaten their destruction? Is God in control or is he not? That's the question. Why guarantee a deliverance and yet warn of destruction? Well, first of all, I think what we must understand is that God doesn't contradict himself. That is a presupposition that we cannot relinquish. God is utterly consistent. To be inconsistent would deny his deity. You can't have a God who's inconsistent. So God is utterly consistent. He may say or do some things at times to our minds seem contrary. But he never contradicts himself. He is perfectly reasonable. God is totally logical. So these two statements, whatever they mean, are not contradictory, but they are fully harmonious. The voyage was dangerous. All the sailors on board, something's going on. The voyage was dangerous and all the sailors on board were needed. They were the means by which God planned to fulfill his great purpose. There is no inconsistency between these statements. It is sound biblical doctrine. As our standards say, God in his ordinary providence makes use of means. We're going to tease that out. Let's look at it more closely. First of all, the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. There's no question. He's in total control. Ephesians 1, for example, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So neither chance nor fate nor human activity will determine our destiny. It is the eternal counsel of God's will that determines the course of everything. That's what he said in Ephesians 1. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that word is unqualified. Nothing is outside of it, and everything is included in it. God's purpose comprehends all things according to his eternal counsel, which means that he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Your presence here this morning has been ordained. Every event in human history is ordained by God. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, Elder Miller read about this earlier, he discovered this truth in the hard way. He boasted that Babylon was the work of his own hands. Look at this city which I've built. 
So God took away his reason, made him live like an animal for seven periods of time. He was degraded from his throne. He was deprived of his reason. He dwelt among the beasts, as he said, eating grass. And the lowest slave in Babylon would not have traded places with him at that point. And then the Lord sovereignly restored the king to his former position in glory. So it was like waking up from a coma. A little bit like rising from the dead. He goes from riches to rags and back to riches. And he says, my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Why, Nebuchadnezzar? Why do you bless and praise him? Because, as he says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. (laughs) That's sovereignty. And Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson. The Most High rules all things. And he now recognized divine sovereignty and he'd been sovereignly humbled and sovereignly restored. And that's our first point. In attempting to show and understand the seeming contradiction, we have to understand that God exercises absolute control. Not one detail is outside of his command. There is no such thing as chance or luck or fortuity or misfortune. The gambler thinks that he wins or loses by chance, but not according to the Bible. Proverbs 16 is absolutely clear. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every roll of the dice. Every deal of the cards. Every spin of the roulette wheel, it's by the Lord. There is nothing outside of his control. There's no such thing as fate. And those who are fatalists say or tell us that things happen by some blind mechanical necessity. You talk to them. And they'll say to you, all the events of my life are predetermined by some impersonal force. Neither you nor I can change them. My destiny is set by fate. There's nothing I can do. But you see, Scripture teaches very differently. It teaches that everything, all things, have been predetermined by a personal God. He sees the end from the beginning. He controls all of his creatures. Indeed, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's point number one. He's sovereign. But then there's point number two, that man is personally responsible, that he's culpable. Look at Ecclesiastes 12. You know, the wise man, he's trying everything under the sun, and this is the conclusion. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, We are held responsible for our thoughts, our words, and our actions. 
Christ knows the extent of our ability. He knows the motivation of our hearts. He recognizes the state of our souls. He's been appointed to and fit for the glorious work of judgment. He's a merciful and gracious and perfectly just judge in regard to all things. That's Jesus Christ. And he will demand a reckoning from every single human being who has ever lived. And nothing else highlights this personal responsibility more clearly than this. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That's personal responsibility. We are morally responsible for the choices we make and the actions we take. And Christ, as the judge, has authority and ability to decide each person's eternal state. And before him, each one of us is going to stand as a person required to give him an account. I gave you life. What did you do with it? And he will scrutinize every idle thought, every careless word, every conscious action. And those who are found in Christ will be openly acknowledged and acquitted before an assembled universe. But those outside of Christ will be condemned. They'll be sentenced to hell. And there is no question the Bible teaches the universality of human accountability. He says we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's universal. Every one of us, old and young, rich and poor, ignorant and learned. John saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne in Revelation 20. Every single one. Scripture also teaches the individuality of that awesome final judgment. Each one of us will give an account. The books will be opened, and among them will be both memory and conscience. And they'll contain the faith and the good deeds of all of Christ's followers. That little cup of water that you gave that young child, here's the reward. And they'll be sufficient to condemn the sinner to unspeakable torments. D.T. DeWitt Talmadge puts it this way, the headlight of a locomotive is terrible as it sweeps around the horseshoe curve, but more intense, more far-reaching, more sudden, swift, and tremendous is the headlight of an advancing judgment day. So God is sovereign, and we are responsible. And Scripture reveals these twin truths— So in the text, he declares the deliverance of these sailors and yet warns of the danger of losing it. What are we to make of that? How are we to understand this seeming paradox? I think here's the point. God fulfills his sovereign purpose through the means that he's appointed. God fulfills that eternal purpose through the means that he's appointed. The way he exercises his sovereignty is to employ human agents. So great is God that he is able to use our free choices to accomplish his purpose. Isn't that great? It goes beyond our ability to comprehend, doesn't it? 
God ordains both the ends and the means to achieve those ends. So in considering our text, we see that these twin truths are at work. God sovereignly ordained that not one sailor would be lost at sea. That was his decree. And yet, the sailors themselves were responsible to remain on board until the right time. He who ordained the end, God has granted you all those who sail with you, appointed the means. These men must stay in the ship. The ordained end, the deliverance, was achieved by the appointed means, the sailors. And that's how God chooses to work. And quite frankly, I think that's more amazing than the use of raw power. He could have put them up and put them on the island. He chooses to use means. The skill of those seamen were the means by which their salvation was accomplished. And this isn't fatalism. For as I said, the ends and the means are ordained by a personal God. The fatalist, he believes that everything is predetermined by impersonal force. Star Wars, the force. But scripture teaches, and I think history confirms, that there is a moral influence over the cosmos. Proverbs 14 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That is a moral declaration. God blesses and he curses according to his word. A just government. Impartial equity. The practice of virtue. Charity for the poor. These things exalt a nation because God blesses them. Places where sin and vice prevail are despised and held in contempt. The former countries tend to flourish, whereas the latter countries crumble from within. And the Lord is the one who brings it about. He is the moral governor of the universe and he reigns supreme. The fatalist believes that his death is fated. It makes no difference to him what he does. If this is the day that I'm supposed to die, caution is of no use. If this is not the day that I'm supposed to die, caution is unnecessary. So no caution. Throw it to the wind. I either die or I don't die. It's fated. He believes that everything is mechanically predetermined no matter what he does, and thus all of history simply unfolds according to a cold, hard, impersonal fate. But the Bible says that all things unfold not according to fate, but the true God who made heaven and earth. He does not ordain a car crash apart from the things that cause the car to crash. Caution is the usual cause of safety. Recklessness is the usual cause of a crash. People freely choose to be reckless, and God ordains the inevitable crash. He ordains the end and the means. So the doctrine of sovereignty should never lead us to sit quietly and do nothing. Well, someone says, if God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, why endeavor to do anything? Why pray? Why evangelize? He ordains it all. And some folks fall into that trap. They calmly sit in the pew without ever lifting a finger. 
God chose them, they say. God will figure out a way to save them. And I think it's grossly sinful because he ordains both the end, their salvation, and the means to that end, your witness. He ordained the earth to be filled and subdued, and then he commanded Adam and Eve to fill and subdue it. He ordained the seed of the woman, and then he commanded Israel not to intermingle with the other nations. He ordained the immaculate conception, and then he worked through the faith of Mary. In all these examples, God appoints the ends as well as the means to those ends. And he's pleased to work in and through and by his chosen human agents. And I think nowhere is this more evident than at the cross of Jesus Christ. God ordained, as you know, the death of Christ as the reconciliation for sinners. And he also appointed the wickedness of sinful men to accomplish that purpose. So Peter says, men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So God didn't just allow Jesus to die. He delivered him up. He ordained it. And he did it for our salvation. At the same time, it was the wickedness and sin of man that killed Jesus. And God's purpose was no excuse for their sin. They freely chose to do it. The Sanhedrin condemned him. The people cried out against him. The soldiers nailed him. And just how God is able to do this is a mystery to me. I have no idea. It's too difficult for me to grasp. But then how can mere creatures understand the ways of an infinite God? I think all we can say with Paul is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. You know, I think sometimes people get confused by God's promises and his threats. His promises to save the elect and his threats that if they fall away, doesn't that confuse us sometimes? We are his house, he says in Hebrews 3, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If we don't persevere, we cannot consider ourselves in God's family. We live by faith, rejoice in hope, we walk in love, and yet God chose his people from before the foundation of the world. Perseverance is the way that he's ordained for the saints to follow, so the warnings the warnings, the threatenings are the very means he appoints to preserve the elect. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, says the apostle, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and hopefully you can understand, is that the certainty of the end does not take away the necessity of the means that makes sense, I hope. The certainty of the end does not take away the necessity of the means. Both the end and the means have been ordained by God. God promised Hezekiah that he would live 15 more years. Certain. But the king still had to eat food. He had to drink water. 
He had to keep his body nourished. The meals he ate were the means that God appointed to accomplish his end, 15 years of life. So let's learn that God uses the common, normal, ordinary things of life to achieve his ends. I think this is one of the most fascinating and awe-inspiring truths revealed in Scripture. Let me illustrate by saying this. I want to mention the highly skilled surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic. There are places, other places too, but let's just focus on them. The highly skilled surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic. I think what makes them top-notch is both their skill and their equipment, right? They work medical wonders with both talent and state-of-the-art instruments. Not only do they have high-level doctors, but they have tip-top technology. How much more amazing would it be if they used ordinary kitchen utensils? I'm sure that Manny performs medical miracles with top-notch equipment, but what if Manny worked on the heart with butter knives and chip clips, right? But that's analogous to what God does, and his instruments are broken. In his providence, he employs ordinary means and people to achieve extraordinary ends. And I think this is far more amazing than any miracle he's ever wrought. He achieves great things through ordinary people, through common means. He uses the foolishness of preaching to bring about the salvation of sinners. <laughs> That's incredible. Almost imperceptibly, he works through such common, ordinary things as bread and the cup. Who could have guessed that the abuse and the imprisonment of Joseph would preserve the nation of Israel? And yet to his brothers, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. When the angel said that all the sailors would be saved, Paul had no false notion of sovereignty. He didn't just lie back on a deck chair and throw caution to the wind. These men have to stay on the ship. I think it's important to realize that in the Christian life, God calls you and I to use ordinary means. If Noah wants to graduate, he prays for God's help and applies himself to study. If you want to reap a bountiful crop, you pray for a blessing and then you sow the seed. If you want to play an instrument skillfully, you pray for skill and then you practice daily the end and the means, both of them. You cannot skip the ordinary means. That's how God chooses to work. And it's true with respect to the Christian life and all of its benefits. In the whole sphere of salvation, you and I are taught that God saves sinners through the gospel proclaimed and taught. The final judgment is on the horizon of history. It's coming like that light of the locomotive around the corner. And all of us are going to be called to account. And it will be an awesome day anticipated by the Old Testament prophets as the day of the Lord. But you know something? Out of love, Jesus stepped in. He endured that punishment for everybody who believes. And through the folly of that message preached, 
The Spirit draws lost souls to Christ. And so, unlike the sentimental belief of some in God's general providence, here's the means of salvation. You know, some people will say things like, well, God has been good to me and he'll take care of me and it's all going to work out. Meanwhile, they're doing nothing to feed their souls or to build their faith. They don't seek first the kingdom of God and they just think that God, because he's merciful, somehow is going to save them. And they're building their hope on no solid foundation. It's as if simply because they breathe air, he's going to extend grace to them. But God sent the only mediator and offers salvation only through him. And if I would fail or refuse to use the appointed means, I don't think I've had any hope for salvation. So we recognize the end, salvation, and we apply ourselves to the means, the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's why you're here. If we want to live, we eat food. If we want to be saved, we embrace the gospel. It was crucial for the sailors to stay on board. It's crucial for us to believe in Christ. And the best place to be if you want to receive faith and escape that wrath that's coming is to be under the preaching of God's word. I'm glad you're here. Ordinarily, that's the means that God blesses to save the sinner who believes. But the same thing, and I'll conclude with this, holds true with the whole sphere of our sanctification. The Bible teaches that believers become progressively more holy. That's what he says. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, how does that work? How are you transformed from one degree of glory to another? Well, the Holy Spirit, of course. But what does he do? How does he do that? It's through ordinary means. The word, the sacrament, prayer. These are ordinary things that we do every single week that God promises to bless so that we're sanctified. To neglect them, to abuse them, or to replace them with something else is absolute folly. You would not tell someone to produce a crop without giving them any seeds, right? That's how God works. If we refuse to employ the spiritual means, there's no reason to expect spiritual fruit. So friends, let's apply ourselves to the means and rejoice in the fact that God gives us the end. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.